All right, back on the Young Turks. Joining me now is Tom Hartman. He's a top progressive radio talk show host in the country. He could be heard noon to 3 p.m. Eastern. He's on the Pacifica Network. He's on Channel 127 on Sirius XM. He's on Free Speech TV, which is on Dish and Direct TV and Hulu and Apple TV and Sling. And on and on it goes. And he's now the author of The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. So, Tom, welcome to the Young Turks. Hey, Chenk, it's great being here with you. Tom, you've written what, 24 books? Uh, I think this might be 28 or 29, but whatever. <laughs> wow, Jesus, Lord mercy. Okay. Uh, by the way, he's won four Project Censored Awards uh, and uh, best-selling New York Times uh, author as well. All right, so Tom, uh, let's talk about this book. Uh, first of all, let's go all the way back to the history of guns in this country overall. Um, is it true that we're a little bit more gun-focused or gun-obsessed as a culture? Uh, than perhaps uh, some other countries or not. I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, it w- absolutely. And uh, you know, part of the start it has to do with how how this country started. We started with the largest genocide in the history of the world, between fifty and hundred million Native Americans slaughtered over a four hundred year period. It was the official policy of the British East India Company in the UK for the first two hundred years, and the official policy of the U.S. government for the next hundred years. And we're continuing it now. But you know the. If you look all around the world, you know, South America and Central America, for example, the brown people that Donald Trump loves to demonize are brown because they still have lots of native blood in them, even you know after the Spaniards invasion. But we wiped out Native Americans. And the same is true, you know, in Africa, Asia, all over the world. Native people are still there, but not here. So that genocide was made possible by guns. Then you had slavery, and that requires a police state, which was facilitated by guns. And then you have this wild, bizarre myth of the Wild West, which was you know, made up by New York writers by and large, that glorified guns. And then you get into the, you know, into the current era and you get Scalia and the Heller decision and all this stuff and, and the NRA, the rise of the NRA. And um, we have 4% of the world's population and of the guns in civilian hands, we have 50% of the world's guns in civilian hands. Wow, that's a stunning fact. I had not heard that before. Well, here's here's another one that's amazing. Um, I, you know, I, I I just flew back to Portland yesterday, and as I'm standing in wherever it was, New York, uh, waiting for the plane to board, they're like, "Okay, you know, disabled people, little kids under two, and military." Well, you know, we honor our military because they walk into the line of fire. Um, here in Portland, we had a police officer killed about six months ago. It shut down the city for the funeral. So because they're willing to walk into the line of fire. If you add up all the people in active duty military, US military worldwide, and this is true all the way back to the end of the Vietnam War, active duty deaths worldwide, and add up all the cops who were killed on the job all across the nation, add those two numbers together, and it's still less than half of the number of children who are killed by guns every year in the United States. And yet we don't say kids can board first because they put their lives in line to fulfill the profits of the of the weapons industry. So then the number of kids killed every year? Yes, is greater than the sum of all military deaths and all police deaths. Yes. Wow. Typically by by an order of two is typically you know typically about twice as many children are are killed. I mean a very year to year. Okay, but that doesn't include the Civil War, right? No, I, well I said if, you, if, if the last in, this really 
you know, the Vietnam War distorted the numbers. So this would be all past 19, post 1974. I got you, still an unreal number. Yeah. Um, so Tom, uh, let's talk a, a little bit about the reality of the wild, wild west though. So yes, it was out of control in all the ways that, that you said, but we have this sense of the, oh well, the shootout at the OK Corral. I mean, boy, that was a massacre and a half. That's why we all still know about it all this years later. I looked it up the other day, uh, three people were shot. That yeah. actually wouldn't even count as a mass shooting today. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of these things were just, you know, somebody got shot in the back in an alley and some writer in New York turned it into something. You know, the Saturday Evening Post started publishing in the 1830s and they were looking for this kind of stuff. And in particular, after the Civil War is really when this took off. And the guys who were glorified, you know, Jesse James and all these guys, um, almost without exception, there were one or two exceptions, but almost without exception, they were Confederate soldiers during the war between the states, during the Civil War, who had committed such horrible atrocities, who literally saw war as an opportunity to loot, to rape, to murder, um, you know, for fun. And uh, when they came, and, and of course they were in uh, military companies with people from their own you know, communities, neighborhoods. So when the war, when the Civil War was over and they tried to go back home to the South, to Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, whatnot, their people didn't want them. You know, they knew that these people were bad people. So they went out West to start over, but they carried their same bad habits with them. By and large, they were just thieves, criminals, murderers, and rapists. And, and yet again, you know, you've got these fiction writers in New York who would take a real name and sort of a half an incident and turn it into something extraordinary, which then, you know, was published in the late 19, uh, 1800s and, and then through the 1900s became grist for the mill of movies and TV shows. But it's a fantasy. In fact, the most aggressive gun control in America was in the 1900s. Um, you know, Wyatt Earp had a sign outside town that said, you know, check your gun at the sheriff's office and get a claim check. That was the normal thing. Uh, by and large, you couldn't carry a gun in most Western towns. So back, even back then in the so-called wild, wild west, they had gun control. And, yeah. and in fact, the term armed to the teeth is actually from Scotland. And teeth was a town in Scotland and you could be armed to the teeth, but you couldn't be armed in the teeth because they had gun control. <laughs> so, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so now let's talk about uh, the slave patrols and how yeah. the Second Amendment came about in the first place. So it says, uh, you know, obviously mentions in the beginning uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a state, etc. So uh, now they had militias in the north and they had them in the south. Uh, tell us about the difference and who pushed for the Second Amendment. Sure. Well, it's kind of a two-part story. The first part is uh, when the Constitution was being put together in 1787, there was a broad consensus among Northerners and Southerners that they did not want to have a standing army during time of peace. They had seen country after country after country. These guys were all students of European history, um, going all the way back 3,000 years to Greece, um, where the army would go off on some great campaign, they'd come home, they'd sit around doing nothing better to do, so what do they do? They overthrow the government. And they did not want that to happen. So step one was to make sure that if we were gonna have an army during time of peace, it would be very difficult. So Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution explicitly says, you, the government can raise taxes for any purpose for as long as it wants, it can spend money for any purpose as long as it wants, with the one single exception of the army. 
The Navy can be funded long term, but the Army can only be funded for two years, right there in the Constitution. And that's why the military appropriations bill every two years, there's so much hysteria around it. Because if it's not funded, the Army ceases to exist, which was the founders' idea. So then the question becomes, okay, if we're not going to have an Army, a standing Army during times of peace, and we and at that time, you know, the Brits controlled Canada, the French controlled uh, Louisiana, the Spanish controlled uh, Florida. We were surrounded by enemies or potential enemies. We're not gonna have a standing army, how do we defend ourselves? And what they came up with is what Switzerland's been doing for 500 years, which is basically a citizen militia that get called up during times of crisis. In the North, those were simply citizens militias and they'd get together every month and do you know drill training and stuff. And that was pretty much it. But in the South, the militias served three purposes. Number one, they were the state militia. And uh, you know, out until the Civil War, I don't think any of them were ever called up. Number two, they were the police uh, of the state. They served principally police functions. And that may have something to do with why our policing in the United States, particularly in the South, is so racially hostile. Um, and why the odds are, if you're killed by a stranger in the United States right now, the odds are one in three you were killed by a cop. And then number wow. three, uh, the militias were the slave patrols. And that's what they called them. They were literally called slave patrols in Georgia by law. A slave patrol member had to inspect every home of every slave every month. And, you know, and there were other variables as well. So what happened was when the Second Amendment was first written, when Madison supervised the draft, the first draft of the Second Amendment, it said for the security of a free nation, of free country, right? Um, and and then there was also a thing in there about uh, people who were religiously scrupulous about not being in the military were exempted. That was a uh, they were throwing a bone to the Quakers in Pennsylvania. So in the Virginia ratifying convention, Patrick Henry, you know, give me liberty or give me death, who was the largest slaveholder in the state of Virginia, a little irony there, um, stood up and gave this you know Patrick Henry style oration speech. It's in the book um, where he said basically. If you look at Article 1, Section 8, if you look at the powers of Congress and you look at the powers of the president, they have the power to call up the state militias and remove them from the states. In other words, you know, if, if, if we were invaded by Canada or if we had a northerner who was president and Congress was taken over by northerners or abolitionists, they could simply say, hey, Virginia, you got to call up your militia and you got to send them off to Massachusetts because we've got a problem there. And Henry correctly pointed out there were several hundred thousand black people in uh, Virginia at the time. And he said, basically, if our militia gets called up and gets dragged out of state because of federal power, we'll be slaughtered. I mean, that'll be the end. And uh, Madison said to him, you know, I think you're being paranoid. Um, and he was like, no, I'm, you know, this is where I'm standing. I'm drawing a line in the sand here. And George Mason, another slaveholder, agreed with him. And so uh, Madison, who was also a slaveholder, Madison's compromise uh, to calm down Patrick Henry was to change the word for the security of a free nation to for the security of a free state, to establish the um, internal integrity, I guess, the, the, the power over their own militia of each one of the states, to just emphasize that. And that satisfied Patrick Henry. So in a very real way, and they dropped the language about uh, you know religious service because the slave patrols had nothing to do with that. So in a very real way, the current version of the Second Amendment um, was written in large part to preserve slavery in the South. So Tom, 
I don't know how they get past the first clause in the Second Amendment. It says for you know a well regulated a well regulated militia. I mean, you know, we've now said it three, four times in this interview. Right. And and you know, you explain the history of it. It's not like Scalia didn't know the history of it. So random Joe Schmo, you know, on the street or any right wing commentator, they're idiots, and so they probably don't know anything and have never read history. Probably don't believe in history. Okay, well, that's why I wrote this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm with you on that. But the Supreme Court knows history. The courts know history, and and so how do they get past the fact that it was supposed to be for a well-regulated militia? Now, whether it was to protect the Southerners from slave rebellions, or even if it was just for cops in the North, right? They know that it wasn't for the average citizen, and that you had to be part of a well-regulated militia. So, what lie do they tell to get past that inconvenient fact? Well, it's fascinating, Jenk. When you read the Heller decision, Scalia goes back and finds, you know, a couple of state constitutions that, you know, you had the right to have a gun for self-protection. Um, there were there were laws in some states allowing for that. Um, uh, he also got an old Pennsylvania anti-federalist tract talking about this. But the simple fact of the matter is that no state and nobody in the federal government at any point in time talked about, you know, we need to put this into the Constitution. This needs to be a law. You know, it's absolutely unambiguous. From uh, and 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 just just to put a little note, you know, historical note on this. When Jefferson, who was the guy who really uh, brought this to the fore, when Madison sent him the Constitution after they had the after the first draft in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, he sent it to him in November. Jefferson got it the first week of December, and on December 23rd, he sent a letter back to Madison saying, "If you don't put." A bill of rights with these things in it. I will make sure that Virginia does not ratify this constitution, which included a ban on commercial monopolies. The only thing he didn't get: freedom of religion, freedom of the press, privacy, um, and uh, habeas corpus and the rights of the convicted, the Fifth through the Eighth Amendments, and 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 an absolute ban on standing armies during times of peace. And um, so, you know, that's that's where that's where it all started. And so when Scalia was putting together the Heller decision, he really didn't have anything to stand on. So you read, you know, the, the, the Heller decision, and it's just like this recital of all of these old, you know, laws and constitutions and things that have absolutely nothing to do with the Second Amendment, absolutely nothing to do um, with the militia, and and it's just it's just gibberish. And the and what's so brilliant, by the way is to read the dissents. There were, I, I believe, three dissents in the Heller decision. And two of them, I, I excerpt pieces of them in the book, um, because they just basically called Scalia a con man and a liar. Yeah, well, that's exactly what they are. They're sophisticated yeah. con men. And so, I mean, I, also, I'd like to note the irony of the Founding fathers not supporting the troops. <laughs> they didn't even want a standing <laughs> army. Uh, but well, the, the way it got blown up actually was, um, and why we don't talk about the Second Amendment anymore was when Jefferson came into office in 1800 in 1801. There were 300,000 men in the in the army, kind of left over from the Revolutionary War. He reduced that down to 6,000, wow. and he was quite proud of that. You know that he was doing away with the standing army. This is his idea. But then, right after he left office. You know, we got in this little problem with Canada and the British, the War of 1812, and they made it all the way to D.C. and burned the Capitol building. And so in the years following that, the, the particularly the anti-Jefferson 
folks were saying, you know, if Jefferson hadn't decimated the army, we would have been able to stop them, blah, blah, blah. And there's some truth to that. And so we really haven't had a conversation about this since basically 1815 or 1818. From that period of time until the 1970s, the, the Second Amendment was thought of like the Third Amendment, you know, it's, which says you can't quarter soldiers in your home. Oh, it's just one of those vestigial things, the way that medicine used to think the appendix was, you know, leftover from some ancient time. And it wasn't until the 70s and when the NRA was taken over by the gun manufacturers that um, anybody started paying attention to the Second Amendment again. It so, just wasn't an issue. So this is uh, why I sometimes call Tom the professor. Man, he's got a lot of knowledge and he likes to drop it, dropping it all over you and it's in the book. But uh, you know, I, you talked about how the British burned down the White House. <laughs> if you guys remember, Donald Trump said it was Canada and that's why he had to ban cars from Canada because sometimes they're a national security threat because they burned right. down the White House. No, it was the British that came from Canada. He, right. Okay, uh, he should read your books, uh, but that would yes. mean having to read more than a page. Yeah, he can't do that. Right, and you put a lie to Scalia's arguments about original intent and plain reading of the Constitution. He never meant any of that, and that this case absolutely proves it. Oh, but if I if I can, Jen, real quickly, originalism, and I, the next book, the book that's coming out this fall, is the hidden history of the Supreme Court and uh, the betrayal of America. And that in, in in that book, I really get into the whole originalism scam. Originalism is basically Scalia and the other, now all five of them are claiming to be originalists. Um, basically what they were saying was, we can read the minds of the founders. We know what they actually meant because we can read their mind. You know, it's like these preachers who go on TV and say, God told me I need a $54 million Learjet. Please call this number and send me the money. They're hustlers, they're con men. Yeah, the other thing you might want to read is the Federalist Papers. Yeah. <laughs> and when it's inconvenient, all of a sudden, I, I, I knew the Federalist Papers were around here somewhere, I just can't find them. <laughs> so now, let's talk about today uh, before we run out of time. So uh, what are the couple of different ways that you think that we could actually fix the problem of the out of control uh, guns and number of guns and number of gun uh, crimes that happen in America? Right. Well, the obvious stuff that's already been, you know, uh, legislated out of the House, that you know, is is closing the gun show loopholes and stuff like that. Um, but and but I'm the two main things I'm calling for in the book is number one that we regulate semi-automatic weapons the same way we do fully automatic weapons. Even up until the 18, 1980s, late 1980s, um, police departments were not using semi-automatic weapons. These are weapons of war, and they should not be on our streets. Uh, number one. Number two. I'm suggesting that we regulate guns the same way we regulate cars. In 1920, you could get in a car, you could buy a car, and you didn't have to have a driver's license or insurance or registration or anything. And all kinds of people were dying in car accidents because there were so many cars, you know, they were really starting to get popular. So we came up with a simple three-step process. Number one, from the time it's made until the time it's destroyed, it's registered. And every, every year you renew the registration with the state. So there's a chain of responsibility with regard to the ownership. Number two, you prove that you know how to drive both actually physically driving and passing a written test saying that you know the laws. And number three, you have liability insurance. We can do all three of these things with guns very simply. In fact, most states, or many states, it's not a majority, but many states in order to get a concealed carry permit, you've got to do the license part you know, with both the written and the shooting test already. Um, the registration, guns all have serial numbers. We could run this through the DMV, the bureaucracy's already there. And if you're pitching this to a Republican, the insurance part is the ultimate free market solution. We don't want our government, in fact, our government's not particularly good at it, predicting who's going to probably be a criminal. 
right? That's, that's, that's kind of dystopian. Um, the government's good at prosecuting them after the crimes. But we have an entire industry that's good at predicting how people are going to behave. And it's called the insurance industry. You try to buy life insurance, the price is going to depend on, the, you know, they're going to look at, at your life and determine how long you're going to live. Health insurance, the price is going to be, you know, car insurance, same thing. So gun insurance, I mean, you try to get insurance for your gun, if you have to have it to have a gun, and you got, you know, a conviction for domestic violence, you know, they may quote your price of $10,000 a year rather than the 200 bucks a year that, that is roughly the price of gun liability insurance right now. And, and that would keep guns out of the hands of uh, the bad guys. So That's right, and without the government sticking their nose into anything. Well, there you go. I'm sure they'll love that proposal. Uh, but that leads to the, the final part, which is why they don't love it, which is that they get paid not to love it. And so unfortunately, uh, I hope everybody picks up your book and, and, and reads it. But Tom, in a sense, you've already won the battle. It's not a matter of persuasion. For example, 97% of Americans want federal background checks. It's a matter of democracy. Uh, it wouldn't really matter if it was 98%. We're not getting it because of the corruption, right? Well, it's not just the corruption, and this is one of the things I point out in this book, and I really amplify in the next one about the Supreme Court. This goes back to the 1976 Buckley decision that I know you're, a, you know, very knowledgeable about. You've been working your own campaign on this. You know, in, in that decision, the Supreme Court said that money is the same thing as free speech, and therefore is protected. And then two years later, in First National Bank versus Bilotti, they extended that to corporations. Um, as long as that's the law of the land, even though it was made up by the Supreme Court, which arguably shouldn't have the power to make law, as long as that's the law of the land, the NRA and the gun manufacturers will be able to continue to own politicians, and they own the entire Republican Party, and and sadly a small part of the Democratic Party, and they'll be able to continue to uh, you know carpet bomb any legislative efforts, particularly ballot initiative efforts, to to change things. Yeah, that's exactly right, and and that's why we never get any of these things passed. So we need a constitutional amendment uh, to get all the money out and the private financing of elections. Uh, so Tom Hartman, everybody check out TomHartman.com, and the book is The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. As you can tell, it, it is an absolutely fascinating read, chock full of amazing history and facts about uh, this issue. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate Cenk, it. Thanks so much. You have such a great show. I'm so, it's an honor to be on it with you. Thank, thank you. you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, guys. Uh, the post game is next. Uh, J.R. Jackson and Brett Ehrlich are going to actually take you through the post game. Uh, in order to get the last half hour of the Young Turks, so you guys know, tyt.com slash trial, and you get to try it for a week free. You can see me and Ben yelling at each other yesterday on Old School as part of that fun. Um, so, um, and tonight at 9 o'clock Eastern, I'll be on CNN on Cuomo primetime debating uh, the Trump campaign team about whether he's a criminal. So don't miss that either. All right, we'll see you soon.